Lord Jesus, we come to you once more. And we pray, Lord, that you'll speak to each and every one of us. We pray, Lord, that we will hear your voice and only your voice. And that you will give us the faith and the grace we need to obey you, however difficult it may be. So again, Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us and your precious word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Could we have the... There we are. Technology, what will we do without it? Holding on or letting go the call of Jesus. The Bible is different from any other book in the world. As you know, we turn to it, we turn to very familiar passages that we've read time and time and time again. And those passages say something different to us. And we're encouraged, of course, and strengthened in our faith. But also those passages say the same thing. <coughs> you remember you, when you were at school years ago? I can just about remember it. Just about remember. Um, when the teacher would say to you, well, you don't need to bother with that anymore. <coughs> you need to go on. Forget it. You, that's something you know. But when it comes to the Bible, it's different, isn't it? There are verses that we've read time and time again, saying the same thing over and over again. And we know that we need them. We know those things are true for us. And this passage here of the rich young ruler, I read, first of all, when I became a Christian, when I was about the age of 11, many, many years ago. And uh, when I started to do some preaching, I'm 18 and 19, this is one of my favorite passages. And it's a passage that continues to speak to me as it does to us all. The same message, the same truths, and uh, it's very challenging, of course, to us. This passage is one of the most powerful and poignant stories in the Gospels. It is found in all the synoptics. And we put in these together, we have a nice little picture of this young man, that he was rich, that he was young, that he was a ruler, and also that he was, um, how can I put it, serious. He was a serious young guy. We don't know how young he was. He says, he refers to himself as, when I was a boy, meaning that's some time ago. I think, I could be wrong, <clears throat> I think he was about 18 or 19. Um, but he wasn't your usual 18 and 19 year old. So he had a lot going for him, this young man. He had wealth, he had status and youth. What more did anyone need? And no doubt he was well known in the area where he lived. And people, despite his age, would look up to him. Now, in those days, if anybody was rich, it was regarded as God's blessing. Now, this young man was not just rich, he had great wealth. And so when he would walk down the street, people would say, that young man, he has been really blessed by God, hasn't he? Because he has so much wealth. And that's what people thought in those days. I wanted to do two things pretty quickly this morning. 
First of all, to look at the main details of this little story that I'm sure we all know very well. And then to look at the underlying theme or issue that we find in this story. First of all, the details. A man came up to up to Jesus, running, and fell at his feet. Now, that was quite an unusual thing, maybe, in those days. Um, I don't know how many of us are into running. I did a bit a long time ago, but with my hip and all the rest of it, my running days are well and truly over, I think, unless there's a miracle around the corner. But I used to enjoy running, and I know Paul does it a bit now and again, I suspect, yes. Any other runners here? Any other runners? Oh, well done, we've got two runners this morning. <laughs> Any more, that's great, lovely. Um, so he came running to Jesus. He was a man on a mission. He was eager to, to meet him. Maybe there had been things buzzing around in his mind and heart for a long time, weeks, months. And maybe at night time, when he couldn't sleep, something came to him constantly. And he must have heard about Jesus, about other, from others, how clever he was, and thought to himself, I've got to go and see him. I've got to have a word with this, this chap once and for all, because I can't live with this question anymore. And he fell at his feet, showing respect for him. So here we have this. We have the poor man of Galilee, who hadn't a penny to his name, and this young man who is full of riches, falling down in front of him. Was he genuine? Was he trying to impress Jesus? I don't think he was. I think he genuinely felt what he was feeling at that moment in time. And he comes to Jesus and addresses him, good teacher. Then there's the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting here is that Jesus, first of all, doesn't tackle the description, good teacher, but first of all, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he turns round to the, to the young man and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing was that he was doing something that he always did. He was pointing away from himself to his Father. He wasn't denying his goodness, his divinity as we call it. He was saying there is no one good except God alone. And then he turns to the question, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? For all his good living, for all that he was doing, that young man, for all his seriousness and sincerity, he knew that there was something missing in his life. And he felt that it was something that he could do in order to rectify it. What must I do to in inherit eternal life? He was thinking of actions like the Pharisees who always thought in terms of pleasing God in terms of rules and regulations. But what was he searching for? Well, he says eternal life. 
Now, there's been much debate among scholars as to what this means. Most of them turn down the idea that it means everlasting life after death. But we won't trouble ourselves with this this morning. Um, Here was a young man who knew there was something missing in his life. And it was something to do with God and spiritual things. But Jesus doesn't refer to the question... In fact, what he does is that he refers to the commandments. And he quotes commandments 6 to 9 to do with our relationship to other people. Summed up in, in the commandment in the Old Testament, you love your neighbor as yourself. And when he'd heard this, the young man turned to Jesus and said, <clears throat> Teacher, all these things... I have kept since I was a boy. And he was, he was sincere. He was speaking the truth. He had been brought up in a culture that said, if you want to please God, you've got to obey the law, the commandments. And he said, I've done this. I've done this since I was a little lad. And he was speaking the truth. But yet there was something missing something basic, gone. There was a hole in this man's life. And then we read in verse 21, that lovely verse. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus saw there there was an attraction in this young man. There was something that Jesus loved, that Jesus saw right in the centre of this young man's life. Maybe his his spontaneity, his eagerness, we don't know. Maybe there are lots of things in that look of love that Jesus gave him. There's the appeal of love itself. Jesus wasn't angry with him. He loved him too much for that. But also it was a look of grief because Jesus knew how perhaps things would turn out and his heart was full of grief as he loved, looked at this young man and loved him at the same time. And then he says to him, one thing you like Jesus knew that in spite of all that he was doing, all his apparent sincerity and genuineness, his eagerness to obey the law, that there was something missing in his life. And Jesus then puts his finger on it, right on the spot. He says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come and follow me. Jesus says here three things. He says everything. He says, go and sell everything you have. Now, was Jesus being unfair? Everything. Not 50%, 60%, 75%, not 90%. Everything you have give it away. 
and give it secondly to the people who are poor, the people who need it most. To those who perhaps up to that point in time he hadn't thought about a minute about them, about the poor. His life was about him and about his wealth. And then Jesus said, if you do that, you won't lose out. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. And then Jesus said finally to him, come and follow me. Come and follow me. You see, Jesus wasn't saying to this chap, I want you to turn over a new leaf, merely. He wasn't saying to, to him, I want you to be moral and charitable and live for other people. I want you to follow me. I want you to be a disciple. Jesus was inviting him to become a disciple. Nothing more, nothing less. A whole way, a, new, a whole new way of life, of living. Come and follow me. And then we read that in verse 22, that very sad verse. At this man's face, uh, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He's the only man in the Bible, in the Gospels, from whom we read that about whom that they went from Jesus feeling sad. The only person. The only person. The thing that Jesus said to him was the very last thing he wanted to hear. And it was the hardest thing for him to hear. Oh yes, he wanted, he wanted this thing called eternal life, uh, but he wasn't prepared to, to, to do everything in order to gain it. And Jesus put his finger right on the spot of where he was, where his treasure was, where his heart was. In other words, he held on. He wasn't prepared to let go. He wasn't prepared to let go. He came to Jesus, no doubt, feeling optimistic and perhaps there was a great smile on his face. I've met him at last. Here is the answer. But he went away sad. He came to Jesus as a searcher. He wanted to know. But he now gave up any intentions of searching anymore. He had come so near to the kingdom, <clears throat> but he, now he was as far away as possible, as far away as possible. He loved things more than he, he loved Jesus and wanted to follow him. He wanted to hold on and not let go. Do you think he stopped loving Jesus? Or, sorry, do you think Jesus stopped loving him? <clears throat> I don't think so. I think Jesus went on and on and on to love him and to pray for him on a daily basis, perhaps. And maybe there came a time when he came, he came back to Jesus and said, yes, I, I do want to follow you, we just don't know. 
But this, this story, this very familiar incident, <clears throat> reminds us of the terrible spiritual consequences of holding back and not letting go. And there are people today, at this very moment in time, who have to face that choice. And it's a difficult choice. Either to follow Jesus, or to follow other people, or to do what they want, and so on and so forth. It may be their family, their friends, their religion. And there are people at this moment in time who have to face that decisive decision a consequential decision. And wanting Jesus, we mean all sorts of things for them. It might mean oppression. It might mean suffering in all sorts of different ways. And it may be there is someone here this morning who wants Jesus, but they don't want him so much they're willing to let go. They don't, you want Jesus, but you don't want him so much. There are things in your life that you're not prepared to give up. Let me encourage you. We talk about the grace of God. The grace of God will enable you to do what you're finding extremely difficult to do. And so I urge you to come to Jesus because he will bless you in a wonderful way that you can't possibly ever imagine. But very finally, finally, very finally, <laughs> finally, um, I want us just to spend a few moments widening this concept of holding on or letting go. Because it may be that this also applies to us who believe. It may be that we too as Christians are holding on and not letting go. There's something in our lives that we're holding on to and we can't let go. It's part and parcel of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves involved in. Paul talks about it as being the battle against the flesh and the blood and the spirit. And part of that is, I'm sure, your experience, and it's certainly been mine, when there have been time and time and time again when I've tempted and I want to hold on and not let go. Um, I don't normally talk about myself, but um, one thing that I'm tending to do is hold on to the past and not let go. And I'm sure you could give lots and lots of examples of this as a Christian, of holding on and not letting go. I want to end on a very, well, hopefully, a, a helpful um, conclusion to this. So where do we go from here? Because it's absolutely true, isn't it, in all of our experience as Christians, not letting go ain't easy. They're not easy. If we say it's easy, then it's a sure indication that we haven't thought about it sufficiently. Letting go is never going to be easy. But there are a number of things which I think you can remind yourself of, and I'm going to suggest in finishing. 
three little Ps. First of all, we have the presence of God, the Lord Jesus, within us. When we come to him, we are born of the Spirit. The Spirit comes in to live within us. So it's no longer just the flesh anymore. It's the Spirit comes inside us to indwell within us. And it's he who gives us the strength, the grace to let go and overcome. So that, as Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we have the Spirit within us, and he will never, ever let us go. However difficult it may be, however hard this question, this issue may be, from time to time, he will give us the grace and the strength to let go, day by day. Secondly, we have his prayers. Jesus is praying for you and me, even at this very moment in time. He is in glory. He knows what it means to be in this situation of facing this issue of pleasing self or pleasing God. And he's praying for us, praying for you and for me. The word in the Bible calls interceding. He is interceding on our behalf. Romans chapter 8 says, Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised from the dead is also interceding for us. The same chapter says, the Spirit intercedes for God's people. And so he's praying for you and for me. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're, what we're wrestling with. And he's praying for you and for me at this moment. And finally, Jesus gives a wonderful promise. He's talking to the young man and he says to him, young man, if you do what I want you to do, you will have treasure in heaven. You, you won't miss out. You won't miss out at all. There won't be any sort of sacrifice in that sense. You won't miss out at all. You will have treasure in heaven. And following on from this incident in all the synoptics, Jesus talks about wealth and the kingdom. And, and Peter pipes up and he says, after listening to what Jesus says, we have left all things to follow you. We have left all things to follow you. And of course it was perfectly true. Peter and the rest of the disciples have given up family, friends, job, you name it. They've given absolutely everything up in order to follow Jesus. And then Jesus turns around to Peter and says, Peter, if you do what I want you to do, you will receive a hundred more, a hundred times more. So there's a sense in which when we give up, things, he always puts things in up in the place that are just so wonderful, so incredible, so amazing. So there's no losers in God's game. One thing is sure, I'll finish here, one thing is sure that Jesus is here this morning and he's saying to you and to me, Whatever our relationship may be to him, 
he's saying to you and to me, come and follow me. May we have the grace and the faith to do that this morning. Before we have a brief time of open prayer, let us sing from our hymn books.